0: We all love a good scare. Where better to scream yourself silly than an amusement park? Thrill rides and haunted houses give us the sensation of fear, all without any risk to ourselves. We can experience extreme situations in an environment of complete safety. Or so we like to believe. For visitors to Six Flags Great Adventure in Jackson Township, New Jersey, one night the horror became all too real. This is the story of the Haunted Castle Fire. Welcome to Fatal Errors, the podcast about man made disasters. Each episode, we take a look at a deadly mishap that was caused or exacerbated by human failure. While the details vary, these stories all have one thing in common they could have been prevented. Some will call them accidents, but I disagree. Whether due to negligence, incompetence, mismanagement, or simply greed, these tragedies were all but inevitable. The subject of today's episode is a case in point. The haunted castle attraction at Six Flags Great Adventure was shoddily constructed to begin with. Lax fire code enforcement allowed thousands of visitors to pass through a poorly lit, disorienting space that lacked basic fire prevention and suppression features. Poor upkeep and managerial neglect transformed an unsafe space into a death trap. A disaster was coming. The only question was when. The answer turned out to be May 11th, 1984, when a fire started in the Haunted Castle. After the flames had subsided, eight teenagers were dead. During the 1970s, the doorway to hell was a walk-through dark ride on the casino pier of Seaside Heights, New Jersey. Built by George Mahana's Haunted House Company, the attraction sported a spooky facade resembling a gothic castle. From the sun dappled boardwalk outside, visitors made their way through darkened corridors, passing eerie props and being startled by costumed performers before emerging through an exit made to look like the gaping mouth of a leering skull. Construction of the Doorway to Hell was pretty simple. A few truck trailers were laid out in a maze-like configuration, with matching entryways allowing the creation of a single continuous path from entrance to exit. Alongside the more traditional thrills of the casino pier, the Doorway to Hell was a must-see attraction. In 1978, management of Six Flags Great Adventure was on the hunt for a way to boost ticket sales during the so-called shoulder season the period after summertime's peak attendance, when weather would still accommodate visitors to the theme park. With Halloween time coming up, a haunted house would fit the bill. They didn't have to look far. Just 30 miles to the southeast was the proof of concept they needed. Management contracted with the Haunted House Company to construct an attraction similar to the Doorway to Hell as a pilot for the 1978 shoulder season. The Haunted House Company dutifully provided four truck trailers containing prefabricated scenes. Once they were assembled, park management was responsible for the facade. They built a dilapidated-looking white house with boarded-up windows, decaying shutters, and overgrown greenery. Inside were just a few scenes featuring spooky layouts and cast members playing characters such as the Butcher, a knife-wielding maniac wearing a blood-stained apron, and Count Dracula. The attraction was named, simply enough, the Haunted House. It was a hit. After opening in September of 1978 as a nighttime-only attraction, long lines and eager crowds forced park management to keep the Haunted House open all day. The path forward was obvious. Management shipped off the four-trailer Haunted House to its sister park in Missouri and prepared to open an even bigger and better Haunted House the next year, one that would really put a scare in its guests. For the 1979 season, Six Flags Great Adventure again hired the Haunted House Company to provide the interior of the new attraction. As before, the scenes arrived prefabricated within truck trailers. This time, there were 17 trailers comprising the interior. Providing the layout structure was a mix of treated and untreated plywood, and interior finishes included an array of fabric, tar paper, paper mache, and paint. For the exterior, the park built a massive castle facade measuring about 35 feet high and 109 feet long. According to the National Fire Protection Association report, the entire facade was constructed of untreated wood with a finish consisting of spray-painted urethane foam. Photos show towers, spires, and arches made to look like tan-colored stone. With its medieval look, there was really only one appropriate name, the haunted castle. While the scale of the attraction was much changed from the previous year, management still intended the Haunted Castle as a temporary attraction. And since it was comprised of wheeled trailers, fire inspectors also treated it as temporary, which meant that the structure was not subjected to the same standards as the park's permanent attractions. As a result, park management never installed sprinklers or smoke detectors. Which is not to suggest that the Haunted Castle was entirely bereft of safety equipment. It contained two emergency exit doors, each with a lighted sign according to code and a single fire extinguisher. By fall of 1979, the haunted castle was ready to welcome its first guests. It was actually two attractions in one. The red side and the blue side were mirror images of each other, each a continuous walkway through eight trailers. They were joined in the center by one more trailer, the control room, which allowed ride operators to control the lights and sounds of the attraction, and performers to enter and exit without disrupting the experience. On especially busy nights, both sides were open. Whichever side visitors entered, the experience was roughly the same. Visitors crossed a moat and passed through the darkened doorway. The first major set piece was The Butcher, a holdover from the haunted house, in which a live performer menaced passersby with a knife. Directly behind the butcher tableau was a door into the control room, which also allowed egress through one of the emergency exits. While not marked as such, in the event of an emergency, park workers could have helped patrons escape through this passageway. Winding through the narrow corridors, visitors passed a coffin, then made a 180 degree turn into a long hallway. It was at this point, 226 feet into the maze, that visitors came across the first proper emergency exit, which led behind the control room and out of the building. Next came the strobe room, a black and white painted corridor made disorienting through the use of a strobe light. A few more turns past Frankenstein, the dungeon, and the spider display, and visitors would encounter the second emergency exit, this one 336 feet of traversal from the entrance. At last was a relatively straight shot the length of the structure, through the caves and the rotating barrel room, until visitors exited the building. The entire length of the show, from entrance to exit, was 458 feet, and took about three minutes to pass through. The problems began almost immediately. For one thing, too many patrons, most of them teenagers, took the opportunity to loiter in the passageways, either to jump out and scare other visitors themselves, or to smoke, or just to mess around. Some visitors took the opportunity to abuse the performers. In one case, a metal fence was erected in front of the butcher's station to protect the actor, which not only lessened the frightfulness, but also cut it off as a means of emergency egress. Then there was the strobe room, whose effect worked a little too well. Unable to properly gauge the distance to the end of the corridor, visitors had the unfortunate habit of walking headlong into the wall and hurting themselves. To cushion the impact, Park workers installed a slab of polyurethane foam as a crash pad. The metal trucking containers became sweltering in the summer heat. In its second year of operation, the park installed an air conditioning system that circulated by means of small panels that were cut into the floors. Finally, short staffing was endemic. Displays that were supposed to feature live performers could often be found empty. With park employees absent who could have been relied upon to guide visitors through the dark and twisting corridors, not to mention usher along lollygaggers, it was even easier for visitors to loiter. Despite the clear hazards the Haunted Castle presented, it quickly became among the most popular attractions at Six Flags Great Adventure. Responding to demand, management kept the supposedly temporary attraction running all day, every day, for the next several seasons. So it went until May 11, 1984. On the evening of the fire, the Haunted Castle was short-staffed, as usual, and experiencing several technical difficulties, as usual. Fortunately, it was a slow night at the park, and only one side of the Haunted Castle was open. So when the light in the strobe corridor malfunctioned, leaving a stretch of about 50 feet midway through the attraction in total blackness, well, who really cared? There is some question about the intention behind the fire. According to the report prepared by the National Fire Protection Association, it was unintentional. According to the documentary film Doorway to Hell, there was strong evidence suggesting arson, which was never seriously pursued by authorities. Whatever the case, what is certain is where and how the blaze began. In the unlighted strobe room, someone using a match or a cigarette lighter brushed the flame across the polyurethane crash pad, which ignited immediately. Flames shot upward and caught the plywood paneling. From there, the fire spread throughout the castle, all too eagerly consuming everything in its path. Untreated plywood, paper decorations, and inflammable paints all hastened the blaze, also contributing the air conditioning system, which kept a fresh and abundant supply of oxygen circulating through the hallways. Temperatures inside were estimated to have peaked at over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. About 30 people were estimated to be in the haunted castle at the moment the fire began. At first, some of the visitors thought it was part of the show. As the smoke and heat intensified, patrons and employees alike began to shout, FIRE! and evacuate through the main entrance and exit, as well as the emergency exits. Despite a lack of training, the few employees who were working the haunted castle that night risked their own safety to try and get visitors out. As recounted in a New York Times article dated June 6, 1985, an employee named Gary Kaplow repeatedly entered the burning structure to direct visitors to the exits. Quote, He said he had found a teenage girl, Suzette Elliott of Moorestown, crawling through the smoke. I picked her up and carried her out, Mr. Kaplow said." End quote. An employee working the butcher station noticed the smoke and notified the park's on-site fire brigade. As many as five minutes may have passed between the start of the fire and the phone call. By the time the Great Adventure Fire Brigade made their way to the scene, the abundance of black smoke billowing from the haunted castle convinced them to call the Jackson Township Emergency Services for backup. The park's firefighters entered the premises with a single fire hose, but were forced to turn back by the intense heat and heavy smoke. Jackson Township Fire Companies arrived on scene fully 25 minutes after the blaze had begun, and they found an inferno. Despite their advantage in equipment, they too were unable to penetrate the castle's interior. Over 300 firefighters eventually arrived, and the fire was finally declared under control at about 7.45 p.m., one hour and 15 minutes after it had started. At first, park workers and firefighters believed there had been no fatalities. Searching through the smoldering wreckage, they discounted the blackened forms of what they believed to be mannequins as just another macabre attraction. Only later that evening did they realize that the haunted castle's many safety deficiencies had claimed eight lives. As the fire had raged, two groups of teenagers, verging on the fire's epicenter in the strobe room, had found themselves entangled and lost within the dark and burning corridors. Unable to make it to an emergency exit, the nine kids attempted to retrace their steps and exit via the main entrance. Seven of them made it as far as the hunchback display before the fumes overwhelmed them. They died together, their faces pressed against the air conditioning ducts. An eighth teen made it barely further toward the exit before succumbing. The ninth was Suzette Elliott, scooped up from her hands and knees by Gary Kaplow in the nick of time. The dead were all between the ages of 15 and 19 years old. ¶¶ Four months later, in September of 1984, a grand jury indicted Six Flags for aggravated manslaughter, and the trial began the next May, just over a year after the fire. The prosecution pointed to missing and deficient safety precautions, including years of failing to heed the fire safety inspector's recommendations. The defense claimed that the fire had been arson and that safety precautions were useless. However, the only accelerants found in the NFPA report were put there by park officials themselves, In particular, the polyurethane crash pad installed in the strobe room. Unexpectedly, a representative for the National Fire Protection Association actually testified for the defense, claiming that the presence of sprinklers was not likely to have saved any lives. A later analysis by Russell Fleming, published in November 1985, concluded that sprinklers would indeed have likely prevented any fatalities. While it may be impossible to say for sure, at least a fire suppression system would have given victims more time to escape. In the end, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty for the criminal complaint. They held that the park could not have been at fault because it was the township's responsibility to enforce the fire codes, and they had failed to do so. Later, civil suits were brought against Six Flags, its parent company, and the attraction's manufacturer. Most settled out of court for a reported $2.5 million. One which went to trial settled for only $750,000. After the fire, attendance at Six Flags Great Adventure dropped precipitously, nearly leading to its closure later in the 1980s, before finally rebounding in the 1990s. The park itself invested several million dollars in new fire safety equipment. Similar nearby attractions in New Jersey, such as the Doorway to Hell, were also closed and inspected, and this time, inspectors' safety recommendations were heeded. The NFPA revised their guidelines pursuant to temporary, quote, special amusement buildings. Among their recommendations, automatic sprinklers in all indoor attractions. Today, the amusement park industry as a whole enjoys a sterling safety record. According to the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions, The rate of injury per attraction is just 1 in 17 million. Far less than the odds of being shot, struck by lightning, or attacked by a bear in a national park. So go ahead and visit your local theme park. You don't really need to worry about anything going wrong. But then that's what millions of visitors who traversed the darkened corridors of the Haunted Castle thought. For five years they were right, until the night they weren't. For all we know, The next haunted castle disaster is lying in plain sight. Perhaps at this very moment, giddy patrons are passing through its turnstiles, ready to scream their heads off.